every once in a while uh, a sermon just comes up that I feel like it needs to, to end in an invitation for uh, prayer. And so after the service is over, after the benediction is over, I'll be up here and another elder will join with me. And we'd love for you to come up if you just hear God whispering to you this morning um, that you would ask for prayer. This is a, a sermon for everyone here because everyone's going to be in this spot. But it's targeted toward a few people who are currently in this spot. But I just don't know which one is currently in this spot. We're all going to get in this spot here today, and you'll see what I'm talking about in a few minutes. But especially if you just say, hey, God asked me to come to Christ Community Church this morning to hear this, then my encouragement would be for you to come and ask for somebody to pray with you. In 1943, the chairman of IBM, he thoughtfully looked into the future in 1943, and then he said this, I think, I think there is a world market for maybe five computers. Just a little bit off there, chairman of IBM. About 30 years later, 1977, the founder of Digital Equipment, a guy named Ken Olson, he took all of his foresight, all of his wisdom, and he made this conclusion. I, there is no reason for any individual to have a computer in their home. Hmm. Well, we just have them in our pockets now. Um, everybody's got a computer in their pocket. And finally, in 2007, the Microsoft CEO, Steve Ballmer, he believed he could clearly see into the future. In 2007 is when the iPhone first made its appearance. And the Microsoft CEO thought he could see into the future. And he made this statement, there's no chance. I mean, you ever just, when you hear that, you just think, there's no chance this is going to end well for you, buddy. There's no chance. There's no chance that the iPhone is going to get any significant market share. And now it has 42% market share in the United States. So these predictions obviously are fun to, to reflect on, but what, what's the problem is these people can't see into the future. They think they can see, and what happens typically is you live in a, ter a certain frame, you have a certain amount of experience, and then you try to take that frame and just stretch it out 10 years ahead or 20 years ahead, and you really can't see... You can't see the technological changes that are going to happen. You can't predict the habits of people that are going to change. You can't predict other forces that will happen that you can't see just yet. And so they, they look, they try to see, but they just can't see. And the key word in our passage this morning is the Hebrew word raha, R-A-A-H, raha. And it means to see. It's listed nine times in this chapter. And although it's impossible to see in, no pun intended, to see in here because it's, it's written in so many different ways. It's translated provide in verse 1, to look at in verse 6, or appearance in verse 7. But it's the same Hebrew word each time, raha. And when a writer writes uh, this amount of text and uses one word nine times, he wants you to see something. 
And what he wants us to see is that as this chapter opens up, and we'll see this in just a moment, Samuel is at his lowest, darkest, most confusing moment of his life. Samuel's in a place where he can't see. You might think of it as, as Samuel, a bomb has exploded in Samuel's life. And, and he was at ground zero. And so he's been emotionally damaged. There's all kinds of confusion happening in his world. And because there's all this dust up in the air and he's personally been wounded, he can't see. He's looking around, but there's so much confusion. There's so much debris. There's so much personal damage. He can't see which way to go. And in this chapter, God's reminding Samuel and God is reminding us that God still sees. He does see a bomb has exploded in Samuel's life, but he also sees the way out. And he's going to give some advice, very simple steps, very concrete steps to Samuel. And he's going to be asking Samuel, and he's going to be asking you to trust those steps. Even when you can't see, even if you think, hey, this doesn't feel like the right way out, that you would say, I'm not going to lean on my own understanding. I can't see. A bomb has exploded in my life. I can't possibly find my way out. And God's going to come in and say, hey, I just need you to trust me. And you take this next concrete step. And so that's what he's talking to Samuel about this morning. And that's what he's brought you here by his providence to see as well. First, let's just review how Samuel got to this point. Maybe one way to think of the book of Samuel is like a V or a a set of staircases. It goes down and rock bottom is Samuel 15, Samuel 16. And then from Samuel 16, it goes back up with the anointing of David. So most of the first 15 chapters are a descent down this staircase. And the first step down occurs back in chapter 8. You may want to just turn back with me there. It's a very important moment. And you'll see that at probably the top of your chapter heading, it says, Israel demands a king. And these people who are, are, are supposed to be followers of God have decided they're going to reject God as their king. And in verse 19, it says this, Samuel is trying to tell them, don't do this. Keep God as your king. But the people, verse 19, chapter 8, refused to obey the voice of Samuel. Or you might even say the voice of the Lord. And they said, no. But there shall be a king over us that we also may may be like all the other nations. See, I, I don't want to obey God's voice. I don't want to go in his way. I want to look like everyone around me. And so I want my voice to be big. And when Samuel had heard the words of the people, verse 21, he repeated them into the ears of the Lord. I don't know if you thought, I don't know, Lord, did you hear this? Or I'm double back and I mean, I'm coming back again. Did you hear what they said? They're rejecting you. And then I think what, what must have been totally surprising to Samuel. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice. This is a terrible thing for the Lord to say to you. We're going to let your voice be the biggest voice right now. My voice should be the biggest voice. I should be the king. But you know what? We're going to let you speak for a little while. We're going to let you decide which way to go. 
And then, Sam, and then they, Samuel said, okay, and God, God brings Saul to be the king. Now, this is familiar territory for most of us probably. Certainly not unfamiliar to me. Many of you can remember when the ways of the world was just, they're just more attractive than the ways of God. You knew it, but you just couldn't, somehow you couldn't resist. Your voice had to be bigger. You wanted to fit in. You wanted to make sure you looked like everybody else. And so your voice became bigger than God's. And it's a first step down. In chapter 9, God taps Saul to be king. And then chapter 12, sort of Samuel decides he's going to go all in for Saul. He's going to say, well, look, the people of God have rejected uh, God as king. But now I can train up this one man, this one man who's going to be king. I'm all in for Saul. And in chapter 12, verse 23, he says this to Saul, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. I will instruct you in the good and right way. So he's coming to Saul and he's saying to Saul, I'm all in. I'm all in. I'm going to be praying for you all the time. Well, when you're praying for somebody all the time, you're emotionally invested. You are all in on this person, like a parent praying for a child. I I am all in, and I'm not just all in emotionally. I'm all in physically. I'm going to be standing here right next to you, telling you what to do, giving you instructions about the good way. So Saul's all in. I mean, Samuel's all in on Saul. And Saul did do some, some things well, but it turned out, sadly, that Saul was cut from the same piece of cloth as the people. Saul was for Saul. Saul's voice was bigger than God's voice, according to Saul. And so in the end, chapter 15, Saul used God to get what he wanted. He was anointed by God to be the king who would follow after God. And we come to the very bottom of the staircase. And Saul now is using God to get what he wants. I'm going to follow God as long as I can use him to get what I want. And in this chapter, he builds a monument to himself. This has got to be the very bottom See, when you reject God as king, it doesn't take long before you start building monuments to yourself. If you're not following after the true and living God, you you start building monuments because all of us are worshipers. We're built to be worshipers and we begin to worship ourselves. And then in chapter 15, verses 10 and 11, you see this rock bottom here. The word of the Lord came to Samuel I regret that I have made Saul the king, for he has turned his back from following me and has not performed my commands. And Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all night. Verse 26, and Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you. Mm. And then the last verse, verse 35, and Samuel didn't see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul the king. 
So this is how Samuel got to rock bottom. This is the bomb that has exploded in Samuel's life. He's been personally damaged. He went all in physically and emotionally on this, on a group of people and now on a king that have turned their backs on God. And he's hurting. He can't see his way out. He needs help. And we can understand Samuel's grief. By this time, Samuel's an old man. And here he is in verse, the very beginning of verse six, or verse chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, how long are you going to grieve over Saul? We understand this man's grief. He's an old man. He's invested everything he had into the people of God who have rejected God. Then he invested everything into Saul who's rejected God. And in verse 15, or chapter 15, verse 11, it says Samuel was angry. When you read the commentators on this, they ask the question, why was Samuel angry? What was the focus of Samuel's anger? See, when you're angry, you're always looking for something or someone to be angry at. Well, what would you say? Why do you think Samuel's angry? Some possibilities. Samuel's angry at Saul. I think that probably is clear. Saul, after all this investment, you built a monument to yourself. I mean, of all things, maybe he's angry at the people. I mean, people, if you hadn't rejected God as king, we'd never even been in this situation. Maybe he's angry at himself. Maybe he thought, I mean, I've invested all this stuff, all of my energy, and maybe I messed up. Maybe I did something wrong, and somehow he's just investing his life in people who disappoint and disobey. Maybe he's thinking he's just wasted his life. I've tried to invest all I could into this family. I tried to invest all I could into this one leader, and they both went down the tubes. Maybe he's angry at himself. Maybe he's angry at God. God, I mean, you chose Saul. I didn't choose him. Why did you make him this way? Why, why did you ask me if this was what was going to happen? Why did you ask me to invest half of my life into one person who was going to end up going down the tubes? Whatever the reasons, Samuel's angry. And I, I wonder if anyone here has ever been so angry, so disappointed about how things turned out, that it turns out you're actually angry at everything now. Ever been in that situation? You're so angry at one thing that, that it starts consuming, consuming you, and you come home and you're, you kick the dog who didn't have anything to do with the problem, right? Your, your anger just begins to spill out on all kinds of different scenarios because this thing that's inside of you, this, the reasonable anger you have becomes consuming. And I would say Samuel has a legitimate reason for being angry, but I think there's a fear here that it's going to become consuming. And you, you just sort of sense that in God's statement. How long, Samuel? I mean, I realize you've been grieving. I understand I've been grieving. He says it in, verse 50, or the, in chapter 15. But how long? Somehow you're, this frame that you're in, you're stretching it out a little too long. You're staying in this frame of pain 
a little too long. We, we understand that, don't you? The frame of pain. When you get in pain, your life slows down and shrinks down to a single frame. If you are working on a project and your hammer doesn't quite hit the nail head, instead it hits your thumb, what happens? Everything stops. And your frame shifts down to one thing, my thumb. Like your whole life now is on your thumb. Now, fortunately, hopefully you didn't swing too hard. It doesn't last that long. But when you get into a painful situation, things begin to slow down. Things begin to shrink. And everything is contained in this one frame of pain. And if you're not careful, if I'm not careful, you can live the rest of your life in one single frame of pain. And you sit and you stare at that frame and you stretch that frame out over the rest of your life and you start thinking, I'm going to be in this level of pain all of the rest of my days because you've reduced your movie of your life down to one frame. And I've known people who have moved on physically with their life, but they live their whole life out of a frame of anger. And God's coming in to try to rescue his prophet to say, I don't want you to get stuck, Samuel, in this one frame. I know you have legitimate reasons to be angry, to be grieving, but I need you to move on from this frame. And so God kindly speaks into Samuel's life. Chapter 16, verse 1, how long will you grieve? Since I have rejected him. See, this is, I, I'm, I'm at work here, Samuel, not just you. And I've, I've, I'm, I want you to fill your horn with oil and I want you to go. It's time to move into the next frame. And I'm going to send you to Bethlehem because there's a man there named Jesse who has a bunch of sons, which we'll see next week. And one of those sons is going to be the king. See, that's just the next concrete step. It's not, a, it's not the rest of your life. It's just, it's time for you to go. You had the appropriate amount of time to grieve, but it's too long. You're still going to be hurt and damaged. We're not saying you look back on this as a wonderful moment. It's still going to be damaging, but it's time for you to move into the next frame because I see something that you can't see. And I love how it's written in the Hebrew much better than how it's written here in the English. See, I'm going to send you to Jesse for I have provided for myself a king. In the Hebrew, it, the word provided is raha. God comes to Samuel and says, I see a king. I realize, Samuel, your life is in confusion and depression and damage, but I see a king. And I'm going to help you see the king. But you've got to get out of this frame and you've got to move forward into the next frame. And I'm just giving you the next frame. There's a guy named Jesse in Bethlehem. Go find him. And then I'm going to give you the next frame. I'm going to show you which, which guy it is. And I'm going to start pulling you out of this frame of grief and pain. Now, this, this happens all through the Bible. That's one of the wonderful things about it. And when it happens all through the Bible, it's going to happen all through human history. It's going to happen in your life. It's going to happen in my life. 
that we get into this place where we might legitimately be angry or we might feel we're stuck or we might be, feel like we're frozen. And God comes in and says, I see something. And I want you to trust what I see, not trust what you see. In Genesis chapter 3, here's the low point. Here's rock bottom for all of human history. And you knew I was going to somehow bring Genesis 3, did you not? The fall of Adam and Eve. This is rock bottom in the whole Bible. And in this rock bottom moment, God says, I see a king. He's going to come from the woman. He's going to be the seed. He's going to be the one who's going to be able to crush Satan. And Adam and Eve, no matter how far down you've fallen, I see a king. I see a king who can rescue you from this. I see a king who can rescue all humanity from this evil. And I want you to move forward in the confidence that I, God, see a king. Acts chapter 7. This is is worth reading later this afternoon. Stephen. He's one of these, the most powerful speakers in the New Testament. And he stands up at this very important moment. And he's, he has got the whole thing down in one beautiful sermon. And he's leaving, leading all these Jewish people all the way through the Old Testament to say, and here's the king. And when he says, here's the king, those people, the congregation gets so angry, they pick up stones and they start hurling them towards the preacher which I'm not suggesting anyone do right now. As he's speaking, they're throwing stones at him and they will put him to death. And what causes him to continue to stand until his dying breath? You remember what he says? He looks up into heaven and says, I see a king. I see the son of man standing on the right hand of God the Father. And I'm going to keep saying it until that last rock hits my head. I see a king. In Revelation, John, he's the last living disciple. History says he's been boiled in oil, hot oil. He's got scars all over his body, and he's sent to this rock, rock island called Patmos to live in the mines and to die in the mines. We know that the early church is starting to go down the tubes. Because in chapter 3, you read about these seven churches. Five of them are on their way down. And those are all the churches John's been involved with. So he's got 70% failure rate. He's got scars all over his body. He's in a rock mine. And you know what happens to John? How is he able to move forward in that rock bottom moment? Well, I'm going to read it to you. I saw one like the son of man. His eyes were like blazing fire. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. His face was like the shining sun. And he said to me, do not be afraid. Translation, don't be frozen, John. Don't get stuck in this frame of pain because I see a king. I am the king. I'm the living one. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. I see a king. And I wonder if you see the king this morning. See, no no matter how dark your circumstances 
This is a pattern all the way through the Bible. Adam and Eve, Samuel, Stephen, John. You're going to get into this kind of frame. And you're going to feel like I can't see my way out. I can't get my way out. And what the Bible is trying to help us see is that there's a king. And he's promised to come back. And he's promised to right every wrong. And if you really see him, then you can move forward. Then you can move forward. And so my first question for us this morning is just, do you really see the king? If you don't, you get stuck in these frames. God's trying to lift our head out of that frame and see the very end of the movie that Jesus holds the keys of life and death itself. Well, this is important. You notice what God asked Samuel to do. Verse 1, go. Go. Get out of the frame. Take, take the next step to, to, to go to Jesse who lives in Bethlehem. And I love Samuel's response because it's so classic and it's so right on target with my own human heart. So God's come down somehow in, the, in a voice to Samuel. He's heard this voice. He's had eight, nine chapters, 10, 15 chapters of hearing God's voice. He knows it's God's voice. And God gives him very clear instructions. Go find Jesse in Bethlehem. And what's the very first thing Samuel says? How can I go? I mean, if Saul hears it, he's going to kill me. <laughs> I wonder if you've ever done this. God asks you to do something and you go, uh, God, let, can I give you an update on some things that are happening around here? I mean, I know you see a lot, but I mean, you might be missing out on Saul's anger. You might not have calculated in that uh, God, God, you might not have quite seen that, that Saul might put me to death. And I wonder if God's like, wow, thank you, Samuel. I mean, I missed that. How, how did that little, that little piece of information get by me? I mean, whoa, let's back up. Let's make a new plan. I mean, I'm sure the Lord is just laughing or crying. But have you ever done this? You know what to do. But some situation on the ground causes you to say, whoa, hold on. I mean, I realize a bomb has exploded in my life, and I realize I can't say anything, but here's some things that I see. And I'm, I'm sure God's like, come on, dude. You don't see. That's the whole problem. You can't see. And I'm telling you, this is the road out. Take this road. God graciously accommodates Samuel's fear, verse 3. And verse 4 is one of the most important Bible verses in the whole Bible. So I just want you to see it with me. Samuel did what the Lord commanded. Let's say it together. Samuel did what the Lord commanded. Memorize it. Underline it. Say it to yourself when you wake up. Say it to yourself at noon. Say it to yourself when you go to bed. I can't see. My vision is so limited. But I'm trusting in God who does see. 
And it may not make sense. It may look like I'm moving into my own death. That's what Samuel thought. If I move out, I'm going to go down. Well, move out. God's going to take care of that peace. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to experience some dark and blinding and grief-filled, angry moments. Moments that you could get angry at God. And you're just going to have to do what the Lord commands. And most of the time, it's just one step. It's not the whole movie. It's just, here. this is just the next step. He's going to have to trust that God's voice is bigger than his voice. One of my favorite chapters in the Bible is Luke chapter 5. And it starts out with a very familiar story. Remember, Jesus is going to try to teach the crowd. Crowd's pressing in, and he says, hey, Peter, you got a boat? Can you just push this boat out a little bit? That way they'll come up to the shoreline, but I'll be, you know, 10, 15 feet away. So Peter's been fishing with his buddies all night. They haven't caught anything. They're mending the net. So he says, sure. He pushes the boat out. Jesus does this teaching. whole time Peter's mending the nets. Sun's rising. Not the time you catch fish. And what does Jesus say? Hey, Peter. Why don't we push the boat out and put the nets down one more time? See, I, Peter, I know you don't see. And I'm just going to give you a little test on something that really doesn't mean anything. I mean, putting your nets down in the water, that's not a big thing, is it? But it's just a little test because I'm looking for disciples who, when they can't see, they're going to follow me. And this is one of the very first tests for Peter. Peter, this is a small thing, but pretty soon we're going to get into the big leagues and you're really not going to be able to see. Can you put the nets down at that point? And what does Peter do? Just like Samuel, this is what I love it. He says, you know, now is not a good time for fishing, Jesus. I mean, I mean, Jesus, you're good at the theology thing, but let me help. Let me give you an update on fishing. Like Jesus needs a little update. Just like Samuel, just like Paul Phillips. Paul, I need you to do something. Can I give you an update, God, on some current conditions here? No, Paul, I'm not looking for feedback. I'm looking for obedience. But what does Peter do? Because of your word, another great line, I'll, I'll push out and put the, the, the nets down. This morning, by God's providence, you've arrived here for this sermon. And everyone here one day will get into a frame of pain. But you've arrived and you're in the frame right now. A bomb has exploded and you don't know which way it's out. You're you're personally damaged. The circumstances around you are destructing, are are self-destructing. And you have a legitimate reason to be angry. Not trying to take that away from you. But you're hearing God's voice in this passage to say to you this morning, it's time to go. It's time to get out 
of this frame and not allow this frame to define the rest of your life. Now, yes, you're still going to have some pain. It's going to be difficult. I'm not going to show you the whole movie. I'm just saying it's time for you to take the next step. It's time for you to move forward even when you can't see. And you may be saying, Paul, I think you're talking to me. But I don't know what the next frame is. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm saying I want to get out of the frame. I don't know what the next step is. And then I would say to you, then come and ask for prayer. And then we'll, help, we'll give somebody to you in some form to say, let's walk together until we get into the next frame. But you may say, this is something that's going to happen to somebody in here. If I go forward for prayer, everybody's going to think, I'm in a frame of pain. Yeah, we're all in a frame one day. And if that's going to prevent you from getting help, it's going to be hard for you to help any other way. And that might be just putting down your net. Just saying, I'm willing to do something really that doesn't cost that much, but has a great benefit to say, God, I'm willing to put down the net and trust you might have something for me that I can't see right now. And it's possible that there's somebody here who's in a frame of confusion or fear about Jesus. I mean, you're here, you know something about Jesus, but you're not sure if you're really ready to really trust him with your whole life. You're thinking, there's, I've got some confusion. I've got some questions to still work out. And maybe there, there is, but maybe God's telling you it's time to get out of that frame. You're never going to have all of your questions. You're never going to see everything. You see enough to take the next step. And God's calling you to get into his frame. And this is the day for you. So I'll be up here. Another elder will be up here and we'll sing a song and end. And if you need help in any way, we would love to help you move from wherever you are to the next frame that God has in mind because... He sees a king. He sees the very end of the movie where Christ wins. And he wants you to see that and live in that way as well. Let's pray together. Lord, we were all in this little box for one hour this morning for a transcendent moment to happen for an eternal God to somehow speak through a book that comes all the way into a soul, into a heart, into a mind. And so my prayer this morning, no matter how a person has arrived, that they have arrived at that transcendent moment with you today as well. Would you speak? Would you help us see Would you help us have courage to move into the next frame? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song.